0: China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS. This week I'm joined by Daniel Koss, a research scholar and lecturer in East Asian Languages and Civilizations at Harvard University. Today we'll be discussing his recent work on party building in China. Dan, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you for the
1: invitation, Jude.
0: So, as always, I wanted to start out by asking for a potted biography, but particularly I'm interested in intellectual influences. How did you get to studying China's political system and what are some of the material or non-material influences that have have shaped your intellectual journey?
1: Yeah, I studied uh, China actually relatively late in my life. I did other things before. I was actually working in Africa. I was working in development cooperation with Africa as a diplomat for a while. And um, then only I did sort of a mid-career program at the Harvard Kennedy School when I uh, kind of discovered that, you you know, there are amazing sources that you can use to study China. And so yeah, I think about 10 years ago, I started uh, going down the road to study China. And what really excited me at the time is, I mean, before... You know, as an official, as a government official, I was reading government reports. I was reading ordinary consumer of newspapers, American newspapers, German newspapers. And so that was my understanding of China. And when I came to the Kennedy School, Harvard Kennedy School, I discovered sort of the big toolbox that political scientists use to understand China. And that was really an exciting discovery for me. And that's including like quantitative methods, like using statistics, even game theory to kind of get into the strategies that Chinese officials may have in different sectors of society. But that also includes things like interviews, uh, field research methodology, and just talking to you know, many of the Chinese officials that uh, are working in a system that before had seemed to me a little bit more like a black box, but I felt actually it's absolutely possible you know, to do research on these things and uh, understand much better what China is about and get a very differentiated, like beyond the news headlines sort of view on China. That was a very exciting prospect. So I decided to spend a year of my life studying Chinese. I was 30 years old, so that was a little hard to do, but um, it's absolutely been um, yeah, worthwhile. Yeah, I started my PhD program at Harvard. And um one of the intellectual influences there is, of course, that the government department, at Harvard, is they have a number of people who are interested in historical legacy. So that was something that I also very much enjoyed doing, like seeing where the party or just Chinese government institutions generally are coming from, what are kind of the traditions, even going way back to imperial traditions that are still continued uh, shaping Chinese political institutions today. And so those are some of the influences that when I started off studying China about 10 years ago.
0: In the field right now, sort of political scientists thinking about China's political system, can I ask what are the main currents of debate? Is this still discussions about the resilience of the Communist Party or have we moved beyond that What are sort of the, if I was sitting in an average conference of your cadre of of political scientists, what, what would be the themes that would be, you know, emanating in conference papers?
1: I mean, In a way, the question about resilience is still a question that's very much there, and uh, it's been a, a question that has been driving the conversation for 20 years, but just because it's the same question doesn't mean we have the same answers. And I think because scholars have worked on this for such a long time, answers have become very differentiated, and it's also clear that there's not a single answer to predict you know, to talk about resilience, and for instance, one way to talk about resilience is like uh, the whole literature on protests, which really has evolved from you know looking at different uh, tactics to you had Martin Dimitrov on uh, on here, so quite sophisticated understanding of the information that's going into the resilience argument. So I think the resilience argument has changed a lot, but the question is still one that's ultimately driving political scientists even even today. I would say
0: are there any emergent issues or emergent arguments in the field either? So staying within the resilience argument, what are the new most interesting questions being asked in resilience and outside of resilience? Are there any other emergent topics that you think younger scholars are starting to take up?
1: When you talk about emergent topics, I think one thing to keep in mind is also if we look at the last two years, the different modes of doing research, because it was much harder to go to China. And uh, so it's really striking to me how PhD students, also colleagues who do not have the privilege to go to China now, or some PhD students who really never could do research in China, how are they looking at different aspects of China? And sort of the history aspect of it is uh, something that's really very, very innovative. I mean, innovative, but also going back in time to Imperial China to understand the deep legacies of the state building in China in a really long term trajectory. And I'm thinking here, you know, literature like Wang Yuhua's new book on kind of understanding the role of families in shaping the state. And I mean, this is just one example of a book that really talks about. Like imperial legacies, things that happened a thousand or two thousand years ago, the Song dynasty. So that's really long time ago. But at the same time, uh, you know, it really has relevance for today because, I mean, even the topics that I study, the relevance of family, uh, for instance, family linkages, clan linkages, and so on, is really very, very important to understand. Localism in China today. So I think one new perspective on China is sort of going back in time and looking at historical precedents and then really drawing important conclusions for today. Or I need to give you that other example of scholars also in China who cannot really talk about some of the issues they find really burning important issues. For instance, you know, I know a scholar who would like to study like why are young people today sent to the countryside and so on. But it's, it's hard to do and there are political taboos around it. But then why not study it in the 1950s? And people will understand in China that really what this research is about is about today's movement, but you can't write about it so, you know, genuinely, or, you know, it can't raise the same intellectual questions that you can for previous. So I think that's, for me, one of the really exciting trends in the field, because you couldn't go because of COVID, but then also because it really opens up a completely new perspective, exciting perspective on contemporary issues.
0: I first got to know of your work with your first book. And so I've always thought of you as a party scholar, a historian of the party, but also in the work we're going to discuss today, thinking about the adaptations of the Communist Party, the resiliency of it, how it is responding, reacting, adapting to modernity. And the focus of our discussion today is thinking about how the party has integrated, reintegrated itself in elements of society, here focusing on the private sector and the banking financial sector but a word we're going to use a lot or, or we'll reference is party building and i wondered if we could just start out with a very basic definition of what does that mean and i think the word i i think it's the building word i find interesting of this when they're talking about the build, party building what what is that verb building referencing is this about strengthening resiliency? Is this about really how we would typically think of the word building starting with nothing and adding layers onto it? What does that mean?
1: In a way, party building is defined as whatever the organization department of the Communist Party does. So by definition, it's like everything from recruiting new party members, so building up the um, membership base of the party, so like uh, that's sort of the building aspect of it. But it's also keeping the party sort of in an innovative mode to kind of establish a new foothold in places where it didn't have a foothold before. So it is about building from scratch, but it is also definitely like working with a material that the party already finds in place, and then rebuilding, innovating, and uh, making it useful to contemporary challenges, because it's all these institutions that are inherited from the past, and then you build it up into something new. But because you ask about the word party building and the definition of it, I mean, if you look at today's budgets, for instance, of a county, you may find that something like 15 percent of the budget is dedicated to party building in some places like this is varies a lot. And that just tells you that this label is being abused in China for all kinds of things, because party building is in you know China's political world today is good. It's actually the best thing you can do. The most important thing for the party to do is something Xi Jinping asks you to do. So you should invest money. You should invest effort. So many things get labeled party building that really have very little to do with it. And I give you one example. There's like a village that didn't have internet connection. They wanted high-speed internet connection. So they applied for party building. You know that project. I don't know. It's, it's like a, I've used this example once before. So it's like this high-speed internet that they wanted to get. And well... They wouldn't you know, to get the funding, they said they're going to do party building because once once they have the internet, party members would be able to use the party apps and they would be uh, able to study Xi Jinping thought. And so they need this really, really expensive high-speed internet to do that, which is, of course, like an excuse or kind of a justification to get that particular budget. So the word party building has very, very positive connotations in China. If you put this label on any kind of project, it helps you get promoted. And so if uh, companies, for instance, in the Belt and Road initiative, They're competing for funding, and it's already good if you have the Belt and Road Initiative label on it. But if you can also get the party building label on it as well, then you are even in a better place to apply for funding from banks, whether it's credit or subsidies or what have you. So it's a very useful term as well. But I mean, for my scholarship, it's kind of much easier. It's kind of what the organization department uh, does in terms of recruiting, the membership base, and then you know, transform, making the membership base also useful, because it's not just about having party members, but make the party members somehow useful to projects of the state.
0: If you could make a a comparison, let's say we went back in a time machine to 2005 and compared it to today, party building was used a lot as a term in 2005. What has changed over the past 15 or so years since Xi Jinping has come into power? Is there more emphasis? Is there more real emphasis behind party building? What's evolved? What's really changed is the salience
1: of it, the political salience of it. The uh, organization department has always done party building because that's what they're there for and that's what they do. But I do remember a conversation also with the organization department person in in 2000, must have been 2011 or 12. Perhaps Xi Jinping was already in power, but uh, the kind of new emphasis on party building was not yet there. I mean, he had just been voted into office. So it's a very uh, early stage of like Xi Jinping's new initiatives. And there was a sense that the organization department always does its party bit. It's kind of ticking off the boxes, making sure party members report to a particular branch because you have challenges like migrant workers uh, moving around China. And so they don't, are not really keeping in touch with their party branch. And uh, so that was something that the organization department thought was unacceptable. You kind of needed to keep party members in the organization, you needed to keep up the linkages, the formal linkages, and they did all of this in a very quiet way. It also wasn't very clear to my interviewees, even organization department people, what the exact use of these party members would be, and it was a very circular thing. You build the party. And uh, then, you know, once you have the party still together, they're sitting together and think about more party building, recruiting better people. Or But it wasn't really clear what the finality was, what the, this instrument was. For so it was like sharpening an instrument or uh, producing an instrument that didn't really have a function, which, like, from if you do like institutional studies, like in political science, it's like a familiar problem. You have an institution that's somehow left over from, you know, NATO was in that place at some point, you know, just that institution that's inherited, but you don't really know what to do with it until there's one day when suddenly you rediscover that instrument. And I think Xi Jinping. It, this was a moment of rediscovery, like uh, taking these like tools that were still in place, but hadn't been used for a long time for any practical purpose. And that's really changed.
0: You've just anticipated a question I wanted to ask, which I was going to pose by quoting from one of the papers under discussion here. And this is entitled Discipline Inspections and the Transformation of Party Authority in China's Banks. And early on in the paper, which is a discussion of how the party has, through party building party cells, integrated itself, reintegrated, strengthens its, its integration into China's banking system. You write, quote, rediscovering party networks as an efficacious governance tool inherited from earlier eras of communist rule, the Qi leadership or current leadership now deploys them to exercise tighter authority over the financial sector. I wanted to ask that question by focusing on the word which jumped out to me, which was rediscovering. You were just, I think, wading into this, but I wonder if you can go a little bit further. What are the specific tools that you feel have been rediscovered? And if they have been rediscovered, can you give us a little bit of legacy history on when these tools evolved? And I'm I'm curious, when they fell out of disfavor such that they were only recently rediscovered.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's something that that I feel very passionate about, like the the different layers of the history. And they're so uh, like mind-boggling inconsistencies, if you really think about it, because the party as an institution has really the formative moment was a moment when the party was out of power. It's a revolutionary institution to overthrow a government. I mean, the KMT government in, in China So that's what a lot of the early institutions were designed for. So you asked for an example. So if you think about the rule that you need people to recommend you into the party to people who are kind of vouching for you So when you join the party, and so if uh, somehow you turn out to become a traitor or something, I'm thinking, you know, pre-1949, so uh, prior to the communist takeover, like these guarantees were sort of a way to make sure you don't get spies from the KMT. I mean, there were still cases where this mechanism didn't work, but you had two people vouching for your political loyalty to the party that you're not a KMT spy. And so that's really one very specific example of a tool that's been, you know, that was designed in a situation of revolutionary, you know, overthrowing a sitting government in China, major revolutionary effort. And you'd think it's sort of I mean, how relevant is it then after 49 to have these people vouching for you? And it's sort of interesting how now this tool is sort of coming back in different ways, for instance, in the anti-corruption campaign out of all things. I mean, it's kind of a, a tool that's then discovered. So if someone in the party is corrupt, Also, the two people who vouched for that person before, they may be implicated or may not. The party may choose to not implicate them, but the party may also choose, wait a minute, you were the one who recommended this person into the party. So, you know, you have some sort of political responsibility to explain what was going on. And because you recommended the person, you probably know some of the background that this party has. So investigators of anti-corruption process would find this particular practice of having people vouch for you, having two people in the party who are... Sort of your godfathers, I guess. That's a, a, a system that's really made for a revolutionary movement, but that's rediscovered, for instance, in the, uh, the anti corruption campaign. And then you ask, like, how was the party forgotten in the meantime? Well, the big answer here is you know the Cultural Revolution very well. So the Cultural Revolution, of course, like, discontinued a lot of the uh, structures of the party. So throughout the 1970s, all the party hierarchies broke down, at least for a short time, and then were like slowly reconstructed. But in the 1980s, uh, party building was really not very high on the agenda. I mean, it, uh, at most, the ambition was to reestablish some sort of functional hierarchy, recognizable hierarchy, I would say. But you can see this, for instance. I mean, one thing that's really striking is how the party didn't try to even out its reach throughout China. I mean, that's something that's more in my book. But if you think about, you know, in the U.S., you have blue states, red states. And in China, I mean, I found you have some provinces that really have a lot more party networks than others. So Guangdong doesn't have a lot of party networks. Shandong, for instance, the place where I did field research, has a lot of party networks. And not just numbers, it's also they're doing more, even, you know, historically. And there was very little effort in the 1980s to even this out. It was just not on the agenda. It just wasn't salient. But that has changed a little bit in the 90s and then really in the 2000s when the party started to pay attention again, just also to, you know, what are things that are not working in this hierarchy? What are some things where the hierarchy could be made more efficacious? Or, you know, what are our standards for admitting members and so on? This was not really on the agenda in the 1980s. I mean, there were other things that the party was concerned about. And also the idea of sort of keeping this very separate hierarchy. In the 1980s, a lot of things got kind of blurred between state and party. And then there was a discussion, you know, should you keep these apart? And then, like, even liberals, I mean, today this sounds um, insane, but there was this idea that perhaps, you know, you can have the state and the party separate and, you know, even if the party one day would uh, go away, you can still have the state. I mean, today, this is not a discussion to have had. But, I mean, this is a very, very different mindset from today that, you know, the party is sort of a part of the ruling mechanism, but it's also really clear, uh, clearly separate from the state. It's not just the same hierarchy. It's something added on with more function and
0: empowering the state. The focus of, of the two papers is thinking about the how the party has reinvigorated itself in the private sector... I wanted to ask if you can first just talk about the purpose of something like a party cell in a private company or in a state-owned enterprise. If I can summarize, not unfairly, the perspective of many who are looking at China and seeing this renewal of the party cell structure over the past 10 or so years, including elements like joint venture agreements. The party cell asking to revise it to give de jure corporate governance authority to the party cell. Companies which previously, let's say, had dormant or ineffectual party cells suddenly seeing these become more active. Many would look at that and see this as almost a surveillance network in a, let's say, foreign private company. But I wonder if you can universalize the logic behind party cells in private sector companies. Is this about steering the private sector entity or the state owned enterprise towards the party's goal is this about surveillance or management of the cadres within the in the company w- why the heck are they doing this
1: yeah, it's so fascinating to me there because if we had uh, were sitting here five years or ten years ago, like one of the conventional wisdoms was that having a party set is really useful for the company to have sort of an in in the government. It's, it's like a government relations function adjunct. I'll never adjunct. forget like yeah. a German businessman who was like slapping my shoulder and said, "Party cell great." Like we had this accident, this car accident, and you know, he just sorted it out with the local government. It didn't give us any trouble. Like he's the quote. I'm not going to date on German, but like I mean, we have him in the pocket. It's great. And that was a perspective also, you know, Professor Ed Beida, I remember that conversation very well, who uh, explained to me, well, the party member is paid by the, the employer as the company and there's always the possibility for the employer to fire a person. So of course, there's like economic dependence and the party member has, you know, there's a very clear, the company owner or the management of the company has the party in their pocket and can use the party in, in, in the government. I mean, this would be the pendulum has kind of gone now the other extreme. And now it looks like it's like the party is like right there as sort of a police state mechanism. But that's also, that's kind of going too much to the other extreme. I think it's true, you know, that there's information flowing through a party, cell to the government. And um, so if you look at handbooks, for instance, I mean, that's kind of the idea and it's not implemented in that way. But if you have membership handbooks that are You can buy them on Amazon in Chinese. And, you know, what do party members do? And they are pretty specialized. So they have like a section on, you know, if you're a party member in a village, what's your functions and in a company. And so I could have written papers about all kinds of sectors. But the company one is also one that evolved a lot. So if you look at this like 10 years ago, they already had a phrase that party members help in like raising taxes or making sure that the company complies with tax regulations. That struck me as doubtful whether party members really do this or even that uh, consumer protection, that like the food quality, that like party members would be part of monitoring. Food quality wasn't mentioned specifically, but was often given an example as, you know, there's regulations and the party members make sure that this regulation is enforced. And, you know, my interviews were really inconclusive at that point because there were some who said, yes, of course, I mean, party members... They just talk to the tax department. They have meetings and the, uh, someone from the tax department is there and he just gets a sense how the company is doing and that will help the tax department to determine whether there would be tax break, you know, a new investment, perhaps a payment of the tax can be rescheduled or not. And that additional information that the party member brings to the tax office could help the tax office to determine whether some company should get a tax break or not and kind of find out that actually the company has cash on, uh, you know, no problem. And so the, the tax department could go and tax the company. It was inconclusive. I wasn't sure. So their political science methodology really had a lot. And I mean, it's really powerful and clear results. If you just regress places with more party members, like provinces that have more party members, they're also really across different categories of taxes are doing a lot better. And I mean, even if you break it down further, it's exactly the categories where you expect that this sort of information from someone in the company is most helpful to advance taxes so in that sense yes there is information flowing um, but it's not like an adversary or the state I mean that's not the perception it shouldn't be I mean the organization department does want party members to have this sort of double identity as someone who belongs to the firm also in the documents represents the interests of the firm in a bottom-up way to what extent I mean this is really done but they have this double identity, and it's really important to keep that in mind, because otherwise it wouldn't work. I mean, if the company knew that the party member is just reporting, he would be left out. I mean, there, uh, there would be like a big firewall around. So that doesn't... I would say in, in villages. I mean, the party members are just part of the community, and that's how the party has always worked, that the party have this like double function.
0: I feel like I've thought about this problem a lot, but actually, when I talk to real experts, I realize how shallow my understanding is, because you just said something which I... I think I'd been thinking around, but hadn't located it quite as succinctly as you said, of that double identity, or I was thinking this, this tension of, is the party member within a company, is their responsibility to represent the company's interests to the party or to represent the party's interest to the company? And I just anecdotally feel like it is, the answer is yes, because in the very limited data set of conversations I've had on this, it really depends. It depends on the firm. It depends on who the party secretary is. I've talked to folks who are in party cells of companies where once a week they trudge down to this boring conference room and watch a boring, crappy propaganda video beamed in from Beijing, you know, on the glory of the 20th party Congress. And then everybody gets up, says, thank God that's over. And then goes back to their to their real job. But I've also talked to some where there's a very forceful party secretary, you know, who maybe has their own aspirations or believes in the mission and is out doing, you know, taking them out for picnics and, you know, really leaning in on the responsibility and role of them as a party member within the company. So I appreciate that framing you just put, because I hadn't really located the tension in such a succinct way. Yeah, exactly
1: right. And it's uh, by design that party members have this uh, double role. So the represent, I mean, also if you just look at propaganda, kind of the ideal that is suggested is that a party member in a company or party cell helps the company grow. And then there are these success stories of, you know, that company, that private company created a party cell. And uh, with it came better connections to the, in that case, the foreign ministry, and then they were able to expand abroad, I think the Netherlands, somewhere in Europe. So then there are these strange uh, metaphors that talk about the uh, party building as kind of a bird with two wings. And, you know, one wing is economic growth, so the interest of the party, and the other wing is sort of the interest of the state. And both together lift up because after all, the, you know, growth of the company is in the national interest. So if the company is growing... That's something that, uh, you know, helps China grow and become more powerful. So in the propaganda message, there is no conflict of interest at all. In reality, of course, there's conflict of interest. And that's why I need inspectors to come in and sort of enforce you know, more compliance with party. So banks are sort of a, an, an extreme case of whether the organization department and also the party top leadership, even beyond the organization, department, makes sure that's why banking is an interesting case, because there the ambition really seems to be far out, like making sure that government directions are like, it's it's more of a steering than an interest representation, for sure.
0: Yeah, maybe that's a good way to, to segue and get a bit more narrowly on this, the, the specific paper you're talking about authority with banks. I wonder if you can talk about how, as you say in the paper, you've got these roving bands of discipline in- inspectors who, when they land at a bank or at any entity, is not a pleasant experience, right? They set up shop, they have a broad remit of undetermined duration, the extent of the, the investigation. And I think most people know when a discipline inspection committee lands at your, your shop, they can't not find a problem, right? they show up there, they will write a report which finds problems. And that's partly that may be the real factual outcome. But I think it's also about an incentive structure where spending two months at cost corporation and then writing a report saying, yeah, we didn't really find any problems here would would be career ending. But I wonder if you can talk about less about the inspections and more just about what the outcome of these inspections has been, which is triggering a wave of transformations within China's banks that further enshrine the party's authority. So can you talk about the action reaction cycle of inspections, leaving institutions and how these institutions then evolve after that?
1: Yeah, I I would like to, though, add a little bit uh, to what you said, this moment of shock when I I want to kind of start with this because it's really cannot be, you know, emphasized enough. I've talked to people who describe that moment of the team coming in and sitting there. And I mean, first of all, it's really uncanny resemblances to like the whole work team tradition in China, like going back to like the 1950s land reform. I mean, these were highly empowered and um, in the land reform case, really brutal sometimes, you know, missions on the ground. And, you know, of course, it's not the same today. I mean, there are no landlords executed today in the same way. But, but of course, I mean, corruption cases, Yeah, there are bankers who do get <laughs> executed. And uh, yes, it is the
0: anti-corruption campaign that starts. That's not what most people are worried about. Your career is potentially at stake and your livelihood if an inspection team shows up. And um, I mean,
1: I've talked to people who have encountered in Spain, and it's kind of It's kind of interesting to have like the direct reaction of people. Like I know people who said that like it just was a chilling effect in the company. They started to uh, take away teapots everywhere, like a private company. They kind of enjoyed having little teapots in their office and drink tea once. Those disappeared first thing. Then there were like some uh, paintings on the wall. And I mean, it's a huge overreaction. I cannot really imagine any report writing Well, he had a a Western uh, inspired oil painting. Uh, But who knows? I know also cases where painting disappeared behind a curtain and things like this, but there are also others who uh, like look at this team and say, "Hey, this is a great opportunity." I always had this problem with my boss. My boss <laughs> really is not following right. uh, like uh, the the rules that are supposed to protect me. I mean, this is uh, in a in a situation you labor right and so on. There's a lot on the books that actually could work in the interest of even middle managers who kind of don't like this discretion at the higher level. That's not following the books. And there are people also like sitting there, and I've talked to at least two of them who describe like how they were really happy when the work team came and cleaned up things that they thought were wrong and they were bad for the company, were bad for efficiency, and also were not according to regulations. This is not banks, I have to say. I mean, But the logic would still apply, I would imagine, yeah. And then if you think in banks, I mean, one of the things when the team arrives in a bank, they encourage uh, denunciations. Also, like this is good old practice and everyone will be familiar uh, that this is, you know, something that's going by. I mean, cultural evolution does come up as a comparison in people's mind. Yeah it works and it doesn't work, but um, denunciations are really encouraged. And denunciation means, I mean, you have an email address you can send something to, you have um, a phone number you can call up, you can contact the team, and you just report on people around you. And then, of course, it's up to the team to uh, decide which of these points of accusation to follow and not to follow, a very political decision. And it's also on the side of the company, what I have heard from someone who is uh, like in a bank, that companies have learned to deal with this. Like At first, they were completely taken aback when, you know, the first inspection teams came and were asking questions that were not just about corruption, that were going another way. They didn't know what was going on and they didn't quite know how to react to this in a strategically smart way. But then over time, they also learned how to deal with an inspection team. For instance, having things ready to find, like setting up something that can be discovered that is big enough of a problem that it is in a report, but it's not big enough to really um, threaten the career of officials. And it's very interesting to compare reports over time, because the material that I use in my research, there are inspection reports, but we only get very redacted uh, small summaries of this. But banks write up what they have done in response to these findings. And this is a very like point-by-point detailed uh, description of what exactly, how they react to each of the findings. Of uh, of the report, these are very long laundry lists. I mean, I can kind of summarize different categories of things that were done, but discipline inspection teams have you know raised all kinds of issues. But these lists are very detailed and give you exactly like what things have changed.
0: Can I ask you, thinking about as as we've just we mentioned a few times in this discussion, I've come across in previous podcasts there's the sort of formal way that you could read or try to understand China's political system. Hierarchical structures, discipline inspection reports, and, and you, in a way, could just treat that as the political system. But it's a little it's like the distinction between the map and the territory because underneath a discipline inspection report is this complicated human drama. And I, I wanted to ask, to what extent might this dance – be a bit of kabuki theater because I can imagine, like you said, the discipline inspection team may land at a place and and you could assume at the outcome that their role is to be serious investigators of political graft discipline, or it could just be this this is just bureaucratic interest, this is what their job is, and there's kind of a you know wink wink nudge nudge between the two where I'll go lay out some treasures easy to find treasures. you write your stupid report, a few sacrificial lambs and the game, you know, repeats. Because I feel like it's that, I feel like what's interesting about studying any political system, but especially China's is the kind of seams where you've got these formal processes, but then there's human beings navigating these and they're clever and they're smart and people play the game. And like you said, with the party building, I want to get some money for broadband internet into my, local jurisdiction for its own substantive reason but also because I want to be promoted and I just want to I want to say you know I brought broadband network we built new roads we blah 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 so I'm going to game the system
1: absolutely i mean that's why i love to do field research but i think even now that i cannot go to china kind of my eyes are trained to to see uh, through these things in a way and the reports for instance uh, mention criticism and self-criticism which is a term a daunting term, that, which suggests, you know, the party cell is sitting together and they're criticizing each other for not being quite loyal enough to Xi Jinping. And uh, it sounds brutal and humiliating. And in the eyes, uh, like in the ears, I mean, if you just read that report and take it verbatim, you would think like, oh, you know, we are back at the cultural revolution and it's just. But then, of course, I do talk to people who are in this because, I mean, China, it's not the party of one. I mean, it's a party of 100 million people. And you will find people who will be able to talk about these Kinds of things at the, you know, if you study like elite politics, you don't have the same privilege and you can go and check. But with ordinary grassroots party members, you can go and ask questions. So, I asked about the self criticism session in one place where they did one, and um, I just got a laugh back. And I said, Oh, you know, we, I mean, we know how to do this. It's like self aggrandizement. Uh, he calls it aggrandizement and self aggrandizement. And the way we do this is we say, Well, you, uh, comrade uh, Lee, you are really working too hard. This is not good for the national economy because it's proven in studies that eight-hour workday is really what helps the, you know, it's perhaps productivity. So you're really not doing the right thing. It really sounds ridiculous, but it's the way to put on paper, we had this criticism and uh, we report it took um, 45 minutes. And, you know, we did this and on the report, it looks awful. And then people are just sort of laughing about it. Um, But of course, the party knows this too. And so there is this, from perhaps your perspective and my perspective, completely hopeless case of documenting everything. And there's also this belief that digital tools can really change it. And so now you not only have to do criticism, self-criticism, but you have to record it. And then once it's recorded, You don't know whether one day, you know, one inspector is going to take this tape and uh, read it out. So then the whole deception goes to a different level. I mean, you would probably think, I would probably think, well, then they do this criticism, self-criticism session very violently. And later they go out for a drink, a dinner party. You don't know. I mean, I think it's sort of for the state. It's very hard to, to really monitor compliance all the way down. But having said that, I'm not saying that these things do not have any impact at all. And, um, I mean, how can we tell impact? You know, at the end of the day, like, does it change business practices? Does it uh, change the way, if it's banks, is it, does it change the way money is invested? Because one of the goals is like to have, very concrete, like different allocations, like away from the uh, real estate sector and so on. And the party is supposed to help with this. So this would be ideally the measures. And I'm working on papers to kind of connect. And there has been some research done to connect, like if you got an inspection, how does your econo- uh, behavior change? I'm not quite there yet. I really take the uh, the discourse also seriously. If, for instance, in Shandong, you have a bank that's not just writing a p- report, I mean, it's much more. It's like getting together party members from the company, hundreds of them, inviting them to the local theater in Jinan, uh, the provincial theater, and setting up this huge show about you know, party history and really connecting every single banker's allocation decisions with the grand history, the rise of China and the rise of the Communist Party and the role of the Communist Party, and sort of telling an entire narrative of how this are how your work fits together with like the patriotic cause and and the bigger cause and there's a huge show on the stage even with managers coming on the stage really breaking down sort of the stage and the audience and there's also a point where they do a, a, a party oath uh, like sing-along party oath. I mean, it's sort of this moment of um, yes, I mean, we are kind of displaying this extraordinary loyalty to Xi Jinping, and then party members have to write essays, their essay contests to explain how their own work contributes to Xi Jinping thought. And you can say that all of this doesn't change, but um, I mean, this would be like, – psychologists would tell you, like, if you s- comply with, like, the language and you comply with this on an everyday basis, I mean, it does change who you think you are over the long time because it's done very, very consistently. So I would warn both against, like, saying, oh, it's just done the way it's done in the inspection reports. And also against saying like nothing has changed. And, yeah. and perhaps we have to talk also about institutions that change and like r- legal rules, procedures and companies that really do change, promotion schedules that are twisted in a way that really party building is part of promotion, incentives and so on. And, and when we put all of this together, it seems to me that a lot has changed. But we need to uh, look at like the economic impact to really kind of quantify this How much less do you invest in real estate or how much more do you invest in poor areas of the province if you had an inspection, if you had a party sale, if you have active party members versus not so active party members? The difficulty is there really then transparency and getting data and so on.
0: As a final question, I wanted to ask about the impact effects or, or efficacy of some of these efforts by the party to increase its de jure and de facto authority within a range of private sector actors, financial actors, state banks, whatnot. Very much aware of my biases sitting here in Washington, D.C., and and growing up with a normative belief in market democracies. I look at what is happening in China's economy with this increased growth of the party, and it strikes me as just radically deformative of the normal operations of a government and of a private sector, and, and maybe trying to find locate an indigenous critique of this, you know, this was very much behind some of the discussion about separation of party and government in the 1980s and 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 thinking about removing the party from day-to-day activities is because from an out outcome standpoint, it was going to get in the way of sort of China's economic modernization. Is that the right way to think about this? And I wonder if you've seen or located any evidence anecdotal or otherwise, that perhaps this party state model of governing an economy actually yields some outcomes that might be surprisingly efficacious to us sort of neoliberals here in in Washington, D.C. That's right. I
1: mean, I've grown up in the same culture, like uh, neoliberal context uh, that you have. But frankly, also many of the bankers who have decided in the 1980s to go into banking and have their career there, they have sort of the same kind of socialization. So they, um, and many of them start sort of with the same assumptions. And uh, I've actually been there, like this is a really long time ago. One of the first things I came out of college was an OECD conference where you had Chinese bankers asking for Western regulation, how is this done? And sort of the Western regulation as the gold standard and China sort of adopting that and then just markets are going to go great and allocation is going to be super efficient and it's going to be the future, a bright future for China. But that discourse has has been disqualified basically by the uh, financial crisis, the global financial crisis, when really that discourse changed a lot. And now the discourse is more well, we have state ownership that in principle should allow the state to intervene, but it didn't really work before, like in the miles, but there was something, like there's this memory, something was wrong with state ownership. So it's problematic, it's helpful, but then we also have regulation, like Western-style regulation, and the government has that to control the company. That didn't prevent the financial crisis in the US, and it doesn't seem to prevent some of the bubbles we are seeing in China. So perhaps we need something else, something innovative, something uh, a new Chinese way. And like the self-confidence that there may be a Chinese way is something that's really grown a lot, like since the financial crisis, last 10 years. And the party sales or the presence of the party is like this new vector of influence. Like if you think about political economy, the way to govern the country, economic governance, you do have ownership, you do have regulation, but now you have this additional vector. And how is it different? I mean, one thing is you have top-down regulation, but now you have this vigilance that's coming sort of much more bottom-up. I mean, you have party members, like in every branch subsidy of a company who are not constantly writing reports to Xi Jinping, not at all. But in their kind of allocation decisions. They are trained in these party meetings to keep in mind some of the policy guidelines and they also need to keep in mind that one day they may be questioned in what, uh, to what extent their own allocation decisions in, you know, township somewhere in, in Guangdong. I mean, whether it aligns with overall policies of China, they may have to anticipate those kinds of questions. So it is a radically different approach. Now, is it good? I mean, we would probably think from a liberal perspective it's market distorting. And, you know, then the bank now, for instance, has to invest in a place, you know, in the uh, Jiangsu, for instance, you invest like in the southern part if you want to make money, but you invest in the northern part if you kind of want to eradicate poverty and, you know, really are loyal to Xi Jinping. So you allocate money to the places that don't make money. I mean, it's really political loyalty versus profitability right there in Jiangsu. Like, you know, where do you make your investments? And kind of that seems to be like efficiency loss. Because they are politically loyal, I mean, that's a very uh, like exact case where this happens. But then the rhetoric is all is sometimes i mean the the propaganda department has sort of two different rhetorics there. One is if you really think about it in the long run, These are the bigger profits because an American investor wouldn't even see the long-term benefits and kind of the market wouldn't tell you, wouldn't give you the necessary long-term perspective. And that's a big strength. So we are even more profit maximizing. That's one strand of the argument. But interestingly, there's the other one that says, well, we don't need to make profits. We need to break even. That's actually enough. I mean, we need to, these state-owned companies shouldn't even try to profit maximize anymore. They have to break even. They have to be, you know, stay afloat. But they should—they uh, have a political mandate, and as long as they don't make profits, it's actually okay. So there is uh, these two different contradictory, like, rhetorical narratives that the party is putting out that are completely incompatible. But both of them are essentially saying, "Well, perhaps there may be costs, but we we are going ahead with it." And there is pushback. I mean, there are cases of a couple of banks that, where the shareholders say, "We do not give the party—you know—that now the party has to be on the board." we are not giving the party that it's just not good for our business so we are this is like private uh, companies again in Jiangsu i think it's in Nanjing both both of these cases so in these cases the shareholders said no we don't want the party on the board and it's it's become a very important case for party organizers so do we push this and kind of the illusion that all of this is happening in in the private sector sort of on a Was I a voluntary basis? Is this an illusion we keep? Or do we now really make sure that they really uh, go and implement the letter of like having the party on the board and having the party decision? So there's pushback, but it's very little because people are worried about their corruption campaign always in the background. Because if you are not doing well on party building, you may be getting in trouble for on a different count of having engaged in corrupt practices. So that keeps you on the toes.
0: You know, this is one of those areas I've strained my eyes for a decade to try to be sympathetic to the argument that China has an alternative model of financial architecture and regulation that is superior to or, or an alternative to the quote-unquote Western model. And we're almost 15 years on from the global financial crisis. I think that idea of the global financial crisis has shown that the Western model works I guess as time goes on, I find myself somewhat less sympathetic to that argument only because China has not produced Just take a Rawlsian veil of ignorance perspective, which financial banking system would you as an average citizen like to be living in? The one in Omaha, Nebraska, or the one in pick your random town in China? If you are a
1: poor party member in a village, you want to live in a system where the party has a say, because you are going to be the first one who gets that party betting credit.
0: Where where would I feel like I have more protections and options? And I I would much rather be, this is personal judgment, I would feel safer and with a greater option set across the entire spectrum of possible transactions in the US banking system, right? So first of all, this would be, where can I put my limited wealth to get asset appreciation to fund retirement, for example? China doesn't have an asset management industry. I'd pull my money and I'd put it on a piece of property on the hope that that is our meal ticket to the future. I could put it in a state savings account where I would get zero interest. Whereas here, if you Google high interest savings accounts, you can, for minimum of $500, get an account with JP JP Morgan, with Chase, with Goldman Sachs, where you can be earning 3.5%. We had just the implosion of FTX recently, and that started because a, a website, Coinbase, basically got a tip on their balance sheet. Three cheers for having an open media environment where You know, you can imagine the SBF proxy in China who's funneling money into the political system exists for a very, very, very long time because they have a, you know, political patronage network and you don't have an open media environment. So maybe this is for podcast 2.0, but I even feel like if I was an average, you know, average Joe in Randomville, China, I would rather have a system closer in approximation to the, the deep, liquid, mature, highly regulated banking system here, which exists within a ecosystem of rule of law, media transparency. Now, we can critique the US neoliberal financial model to the cows come home. But I, I guess where I, this is now turned into a totally separate podcast. <laughs> this is hour two, where people hear my views on politics, which they don't care about and disagree with. But I think the sort of at some point, saying that the Western model is a failure because of the, the global financial crisis gets me to this other question, which is, well, what's the really good alternative? And I think it was fair to look to China in 2008, 9, 10 for this new model. But as I've seen it evolve, you know, China hasn't fundamentally found a new model for asset management. Its banking system lives to serve primarily the state and state interests, not average savers. So I'll shut up and let you get the final word, but that's where I, I was asking the question to try to strain my eyes again and find if China's found this new, better model. And I just heard you give an answer, which included saying that, you know, investment allocations are determined by politics and just the basic knowledge I have of actual existing banks in China today, the actual existing real estate market, which is a gap for not having a mature set of options for how you save for retirement. All that, I think, is a really crappy model.
1: I mean, it's so easy to say, well, this is just taking us back to socialism. And I completely agree that, you know, socialist planning and so on. The
0: paradigm of capitalist versus socialism, that's irrelevant to me. I think of choices available. That's what I think of. Dignity for the individual and choices available. Yeah, I, I find it hard to sort of
1: think in these very philosophical terms. If I imagine sort of the kind of people in a, a Chinese village who actually have seen a more free market model in terms of families putting together money for the local informal in the informal sector. That came with Ponzi schemes, that came with a lot of money lost, or I know personally like a family that had like some money broker, the local village had actually, who put the money into Canada. And I mean this is for them the experience they had with free market, which is of course not super but perfectly regulated, no right? Regulation.
0: But that's the one they have experienced. For, but forget and that. so let's say you're which let's say you could decide today, you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to either put you in a random town in America or China. You're, you're, you're going to be making the median wage for the country. But I can import the institutions to either side. I can either take China's you know, political regulatory banking system and you can bank in that or you can bank in what we would call the, quote, Western or U.S. model. Forget about socialism, capitalism. Forget out of anything. Just think about your own naked self-interest. Where would you rather be an inhabitant of? Which ecosystem? I just don't want to admit my Western (laughs) bias that
1: I'm completely, I just try to really push back against the bias that I'm coming with into the conversation, which of course like suggests a very Uh, clear
0: answer. I'm happy to say you would rather be banking in a system where you have options, legal protections, where you can foresee ways to save for retirement beyond speculative property investments. Let's put it that way. I personally lost a bank account in China just because I wasn't
1: able to properly identify myself. It didn't have five hundred dollars on it, but I, yeah, it it was a minor minor bank account in a post that I couldn't get access to anymore. But uh, yeah, thank you very much, Jude. This was a wonderful conversation. <laughs> no, but I mean, this banking
0: conversation is is for another time. Apologies to listeners for going on a, a rant at the end. But Dan, first of all, I have learned so much from your work on the party. We'll put links up for people interested in party building, but more importantly, just thinking about this further evolution of the party in the private sector. You know, Daniel's work is, is just fantastic. So thanks for the work. Thanks for coming on the discussion today. And it's great to see you in person.
1: It was great to talk to you today. It's, just, yeah, really very intellectually stimulating. I have still a lot of work to do, I, I see. So thanks, Jude, for having me.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.